Good morning, Central Church. So good to be here with you. Thank you, worship team, for leading us before the throne. Now we're ready to come before God's Word and allow it to speak to us. If you brought your Bible today, I invite you to open to John's Gospel, chapter 2. John, chapter 2. And uh, while you're turning there, I hope you brought your Bible. While you're turning there, I I need to tell you that was not the text that I was originally going to preach this this first Sunday of mine in the pulpit. I was going to start the book of Nehemiah, but we'll start that next week. But a couple things have happened in about the two weeks that I have been here now. One is, if you were here last week, you heard Josh Ramsey preach, and he preached on the subject of miracles, and I think, uh, I think that was very striking and a word that, that we needed to hear. But related to that, I've been having many conversations with people as I'm trying to discern who Central Church is, what has Central Church been going through, and here's the common theme, and, and maybe it's related to what Josh preached. Maybe it's, it's just related to where your hearts are at. I'm hearing some people who say, in words to this effect, I need a miracle in my life. Where I'm at and what I'm struggling with, I need God to show up in a miraculous way. Amen. I've heard other people who, who have commented on that, maybe again not using the word miracle, but that's what they're talking about. They're thinking of relationships that they're a part of that are conflicted or broken. And they're saying, or I've heard people say in words to this effect, I need a miracle. We need a miracle in this relationship. And then I've heard a lot of people as I've met with various people over the last two weeks and commenting on all the churches going through say, we need a miracle in this church. We need God to move in a miraculous way in this church. And so, I don't often claim this, but it was one of those times where God just really impressed upon me, wait a week on Nehemiah, and I was reading through the Gospel of John in my own devotional life, and I I hit this this account of Jesus' first miracle in John chapter 2, and I I felt the Spirit really say, preach this. So I want to take you through Jesus' first miracle. If you're following along, it's the first 11 verses of John chapter 2. I'm reading out of the English Standard Version. Here's God's Word. On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus was also invited to the wedding with His disciples. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to Him, "'They have no wine.'" Or some versions say they have no more wine. And Jesus said to her, Woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. Now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 to 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, Fill the jars with water, and they filled them to the brim. And he said to them, Now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. When the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine, and did not know where it had come from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, Everyone serves the good wine first. And when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. This 
the first of His signs, the first of His miracles, Jesus did at Cana and Galilee and manifested the glory, and His disciples believed in Him. I think this first miracle is not only significant for what Jesus taught through it, I think it speaks to us. I think it speaks to us personally. I think it speaks to us in our relationships. I think it speaks to us where we are right now at this chapter of this church's life. But first, let me give a little background. Let's talk about the setting. Verse 1 tells us this was a wedding at Cana, but we're not told who was getting married. I think we can make a pretty good uh, uh, deduction that it was probably relatives of Jesus and Mary because both of them were there. If it wasn't relatives, it was probably close friends. And yes, we're told the mother of Jesus was there. In fact, it's, it's, it's probably true that Mary had some responsibility. You know, she may have been some equivalent of what we call today the wedding coordinator because uh, she, her concern for when the wine was running out made, made it indicate that, that she felt some responsibility to do something about this. A little understanding of Jewish weddings is helpful because they differ a bit from, from ours, especially at this time. The wedding itself took place at night. So the groom's friends and family would go to the groom's house, and they'd bring him out. Of course, it was prearranged. This wasn't a surprise to him. And they'd put him up on a chair, up on their shoulders, and they'd parade him through the streets of the town, and there'd be torches so it would be lit up, and there'd be singing and songs. It was a joyous thing. This parade ended at the home of the bride's parents. Now, the bride's parents were ready. The bride's parents invited everyone in. They all sat down for a a feast, a, a wonderful meal, and then the actual wedding ceremony occurred. Once they were married through that ceremony, the wedding party would put the bride and the groom again up on chairs or up on their shoulders, and they'd they'd go in a parade back through the town, again with with torches so it was all lit up, and singing, people singing love songs and giving testimonies to the bride and groom, and they would bring them back to the, the home of the groom, and they would let the couple go into the groom's bedroom where the, the, the marriage would be consummated. Now, at this point, you think, you know, like if you got married, you know, you probably went off on a honeymoon. They didn't do that. They, the bride and groom did not go off and leave town for a week or so. The bride and groom actually presided over what occurred over the next week. For up to a week, there was a huge wedding celebration, a huge wedding feast. And it went on during the daytime and into the evening. The, the bride and the groom, the new husband and the new wife, kind of presided over it like, a, like a, a king and a queen. And there were speeches and there was dancing and there was music and there was lots and lots of food and wine for all the guests. And that leads us to the crisis that we see in verse 3. The wine ran out. So... It, Evidently, this, this, this feasting period, this week was not done, and the wine was running out or had run out. Uh, something we need to know about wine, the wine at that time, it was made with the same fermentation process that wine is made today, but it wasn't drunk at full strength. They'd water it down to where it was only about somewhere between one-third and one-tenth of its strength. So, You could drink quite a bit of wine at a a celebration like this and not become inebriated. In fact, if you read, it it mentioned a couple times in the New Testament, uh, a reference to strong drink, 
Strong drink is undiluted wine, and that's not normally how wine was drank at this time. So even some wine goes a long ways because you water it down, but in spite of that, this wedding celebration wasn't over and the wine was running out. First of all, that's a social embarrassment because the the groom and his family, they foot the bill for this whole week of of wedding, wedding party. They're responsible for making sure that there's enough wine and enough food for all of their guests for that period of time. So it's a social embarrassment. That's a shame-based culture. It's real embarrassing to run out, but there's also a potential legal liability. Jewish law gave the bride's family a legal claim that they could make if they wanted to. Can you imagine this? You could sue for not getting enough food and water or wine at the wedding ceremony. You see those lawyer billboards all around? I'm a lawyer, so I can poke fun at lawyers. You know, have you been denied enough food or wine at your wedding ceremony? Call 1-800, you know. <laughs> Compensation and damages are available. Well, that's, there was the basis in Jewish law for that kind of, of claim. So it was not only an embarrassing situation, it was potentially a legal liability. What does Mary do? Look at her words there. They have no wine. What kind of statement? That's a mother's statement, isn't it? You know, that's like my mother used to say, Dan, the trash is full. Okay, mom, I'm going out to play. You know, no, 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 that's not what she meant, is it? You know, it's a direct statement that's not really a request, but there's a request behind it, right? It's that kind of direct statement I think they teach you in mother's school, you know, when your babies are born, that how to make that, that, you know, that, that you, you give in such a way that, you know, you're not nagging, but it, it's persuasive. And that's what she says. They have no wine. Mary, Mary, out of the goodness of her heart, wants this wedding to conclude, this wedding celebration, without embarrassment, without shame. Notice Jesus' response woman, what does this have to do with me? Now, I tell you, I've got three sons. They're grown now. But if any of them growing up in my house had turned to my wife and said, woman, and then proceeded to say whatever they were going to say, they would have been shut down by me right there. But I got to tell you, I think, first of all, I don't think the tone of this was harsh. And I think there's a very definite reason why, why Jesus addressed her as woman rather than mother. You see, Mary, by her statement and and by her request, what was she doing? She was coming to him as her mother, as his mother, right? She was coming to him with her concern, with, with this need that she wanted him to meet, and she was coming to him on the basis of this relationship that she had with him as his earthly mother. What is Jesus communicating? He's begun his earthly ministry now. He takes direction from God his Father. No human being sets his agenda. The Pharisees, the religious leaders, don't set the agenda of what his ministry is going to be about. Neither does his own family, not even his own mother. How do people come to him? They come to him as a woman, as a man who recognizes that he is the Son of God, that he is the Messiah that He is the Savior. And then notice His very next statement, my hour has not yet come. This is very significant. 
hour. That, that word is a word that John uses repeatedly in the gospel, and, and most of those references point ahead to the cross. I know this isn't up on the screen, but, but in John chapter 13 at the Last Supper, it says, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to leave this world. What's that hour? That's, that's the time he's going to go to the cross. Or when Jesus prays what we call the high priestly prayer in John chapter 17, here's his prayer. Father, the hour has come to glorify your Son so that your Son may glorify you. What is he talking about? It's time to go to the cross. So when here he says, my hour has not yet come, what is he doing? He's he's saying that my Father has an agenda for me. And I will not do anything that is out of the boundaries of that agenda, that is not in alignment with that agenda. And that agenda will lead me to that hour when I allow myself to be crucified on the cross as a substitution to die for your sins, to take the sins of the world, the punishment for the sins of the world upon myself, that forgiveness and grace can be extended by God. So Jesus knew all of his earthly ministry was leading up to that hour, that time on the cross. And he's communicating here that I'm not a miracle worker. You don't come to me like a magic genie and and give me your list of things that you want from me. Everything I do is in alignment with my Father's agenda. Look at Mary's response in verse 5. She turns to the servants and says, do whatever he tells you. She's responding in faith. She's backing off from being a mother persuading her son. She's committing the matter to him. She doesn't know what he's going to do, but she trusts that, that he knows what, if anything, should be done in this situation. So now she's not responding to him as his mother, but as a woman, a woman who believes he is the Son of God. And Jesus honors her faith. He proceeds to address the need, the very real need that is there, and yet to do so in a way that fits in with the bigger picture of God's agenda, God's plan. Now, you know the miracle. You probably knew the story, and you knew, you know, he changed the water into wine before he even got here this morning. But have you ever stopped to think uh, that he could have done this in other ways? I mean, just think of some of the other miracles in, in the, the Bible about miraculous provisions. Think of, think of Elijah in 1 Kings chapter 7. Elijah is, is with a woman who has is, is run out of everything to eat to sustain her. She's going to die. And Elijah, God works through Elijah to take the jar that contains oil and the container that contains flour and miraculously make them or transform them so they never run out. Oil keeps flowing out of the the, the jar and, and flour keeps being available in the container no matter how much bread she makes. Jesus could have done that. Jesus could have made sure that every pitcher on the tables at that wedding feast, that wedding celebration, every pitcher of wine, it just kept refilling themselves so it never ran out. But he didn't do it that way. Or think of Moses in Exodus, Exodus chapter 17. Moses is with the children of Israel, or they're in the wilderness, and they have no water. They're going to die if they don't have water. What does God do through Moses? God directs Moses to, to strike a rock, with a ta- touch a rock with his staff, and what happens? Water pours out of the rock. 
Jesus could have done this miracle that way. Could have been a rock or a wall there near where the wedding party was. He could have touched it and he could have had this spigot of of wine just continually flowing out of that. But Jesus didn't do it that way, did he? Why did he use these six stone water jars? He had a very specific purpose in doing that. Uh, He never does a miracle that that doesn't fit in with his agenda, that doesn't communicate something about him, something about the Father and his plan. So this is highly significant that he does it this way, and I think it speaks to us. Verse 6, these six stone water jars, we're told, were for the Jewish rites of purification. What is that? Well, we get a picture, kind of a summary overview of the Jewish rites of purification in in Mark's gospel. And we'll put that slide up there now on Mark chapter 7. Mark in verses 3 and 4 of chapter 7 gives us a quick overview of what the Jewish rites of purification are all about. Mark writes, the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they give their hands a ceremonial washing, holding to the tradition of the elders. Remember that line holding to the tradition of the elders. And when they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash. And they observe many other traditions, such as the washing of cups and pitchers and kettles. And we could add to that stone water jars. So what are these ceremonial rituals? Well, there's the hand-washing ritual, even even at a wedding ceremony. That's why those jars were there. There was the hand-washing. If you were a good Jewish person, if you were going to remain in in, in good appearances to the religious leaders of your day, you would cooperate with these. The servants would bring around water that came out of those stone jars, and you'd hold your hands up with the tips up, and they'd pour water on the tips of your fingers, and you'd allow it to run down to your wrists. And then second step, you turn your hands down so that your, your wrists are up and they pour water over your wrists and you'd allow it to run down off your fingertips and you still weren't done. Then you'd turn your palms upward and they'd pour water over your palms and you'd wash your palms together. And if you didn't follow these steps as prescribed, you weren't clean. In other words, you weren't religiously purified You weren't in a right standing with God. You were not a good religious person. This is one of the hundreds and hundreds of rules like this. And it not only applied to to, uh, to, to how people washed, it applied to what you did with your utensils. You had to wash and keep your utensils in a certain way. Those stone water jars had to be preserved. They even had to be filled in a certain way. In fact, when Jesus had the servants fill those stone water jars. They didn't follow the prescribed ritual for filling them so that they could be used for the rites of purification. They were rendered unclean and no longer usable because of how Jesus directed it. Was this an oversight on Jesus' part? No way. This is Jesus being very intentional. This is Jesus using this situation, this need, this miracle to communicate truth. You see, all these these rites of purification, all these rules, all these rituals, they were part of of a system of religious regulations that the religious authorities over the centuries had built on top of the Scripture. You won't find these in the Old Testament, and you certainly won't find them in the New Testament. They were the attempts by the religious authorities of those days, those years, those centuries to define who is a good religious person. 
and who is outside of the bounds. The issue is, not only were they not biblical, but they became so numerous and so detailed that nobody could remember all of them, much less keep all of them. So it's very significant that Jesus uses these jars that are reserved for the rites of purification, and He violates the rules of ceremonially washing them in the process. He's revealing something about a new way that God wants to relate to us. Jesus tells the servants, fill the jars with water. And even though breach the ceremonial rituals, they obey them, and it's, we're told they fill them to the brim. So, again, these jars contain nothing but water. They're filled all the way up to the brim. There's no chance of somebody sneaking in some wine and, and, and try and make it passable. Uh, there's not, you know, there was a magic trick I've seen different people do. You'd have two glasses and one has water, and you pour this clear water back and forth, and all of a sudden it changes into the color of wine, you know? Well, that's done with simple pool chemicals, and it's just a change of color. But this is much more than a change of color. We're told in verses 8 through 10 that, that, wa- that, that whatever this liquid now is, it is drawn from, from these, these containers and taken by servants to the master of the feast. That's, that's like the head waiter of the banquet. This is a man who knows his wine well, who's trained and experienced to judge the quality of wine. And he doesn't know where it's come from, and he tastes it. And what was just simply tasteless water has not now not only become grape juice, it's gone through the miraculous process of fermentation, which takes time instantly. And it's become not just wine, it's become fine wine. He praises the bridegroom, you know, the one he thinks has produced this or has provided for this wine, saying, you've kept the best wine. That's how good can be translated. You've kept the choicest wine for now, for the end of the feast. Now, it'd be pretty easy to stop here and think, wow, that's a pretty neat miracle. What's he going to do next? But don't miss what John tells us in verse 11. This, the first of his signs… It is a miracle, but John calls it a sign. Sign, the Greek word there is semion. We get our, our English word semaphore, you know, that, that system of, of, of flags in the Navy where they send messages from ship to ship, or I think sometimes they used to call the old traffic signals semaphores. What's a semaphore? Uh, what's a semion? It sends a signal. It communicates a message Again, this is more than Jesus just meeting a need, being a miracle worker. This is Jesus communicating, signaling truth. What is it that Jesus is showing us through this miracle? How does it speak to us? I think it's significant, first of all, that a wedding party is where Jesus chose to do His very first miracle. Because a wedding party is the picture that the Bible gives us of the day that the risen, glorified Lord Jesus Christ will return and be united forever with all those who trust in Him as Savior and Lord. Revelation 19, the wedding of the Lamb has come, and His bride has made herself ready. Blessed are those who are invited to the wedding feast of the Lamb. That's the image. It's not just coincidence that Jesus has done His first miracle, His first sign here. And then the wine. 
Jesus chose of all his miracles, his first miracle, to involve wine. And we know as we read his teaching, wine is the image that Jesus uses for the movement of the Spirit of God and his kingdom that he's inaugurated. And a movement that that can't be restricted by these legalistic restrictions that that have have kept the people chained for, for, for so many years. Jesus, I could say it this way as it speaks to you and me, Jesus takes the water of our human efforts. You feel like, you feel like you've, you've put on all this effort to be a good enough person, to be pleasing to God, like, like, like you were taught there's a, a do list, that you got to do everything on that list, and there's a don't list, and you got to avoid everything on that list. And if you don't keep all of those, God is angry at you. God turns his back at you. Jesus takes the water of all those human efforts on our part to be good enough, to be a good person, to be a good boy, to be a good girl, and he transforms them into the new wine, the new wine of a relationship with God based upon grace alone through faith, not based upon works, not based upon human efforts, a relationship that's empowered by his spirit that he he puts in us, his indwelling Holy Spirit a relationship that is sealed with His wine, His blood shed for us as our substitution, our substitutionary sacrifice on the cross. He is telling us something about now how God relates to us by what, he, what Christ has done at the cross. Allow me to get very personal in the application of this. I think of those words of Mary in verse 3. They have no wine. Can you hear kind of the anxiety and even the sadness in those words? I I think many of us can relate to that sense of anxiety and sadness behind Mary's words there. They have no wine as we come this morning. Maybe you're here this morning and, and, and you feel that sense of anxiety and sadness in your heart because you're not sure where you stand with God. I mean, you, you, you know, as I describe this being stuck in, 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 in an effort to make our human behavior the standard that makes us right before God, you're, you're caught in that in some way. And, and you're, you're constantly evaluating whether, you know, you've got enough on the good side to balance out, the, you know, the, the bad side. And you don't know the wine of what it is to have a relationship with God based upon faith. And so you hear about a relationship with God, and for you, the wine has run out. Or maybe you're here this morning, and you feel that sense of anxiety and sadness in, in a relationship you're in. Maybe it's a conflicted relationship. Maybe it's even a marriage. You know, I think of couples myself included, you start out and there's all that promise, that partying of, of, of the wedding and, and the, the wedding ceremony and, and the reception and the honeymoon, and then we get caught in all that happens in life and all that life throws at us. And what happens in so many marriages, it feels like life just makes the wine run out the wine of love, the wine of joy, the wine of, of, of real unity as a couple. And right now, maybe what you're feeling in your marriage or maybe it's some other relationship, it's just tasteless water. Or maybe you come this morning and you feel that sense of anxiety and sadness 
as you grieve the difficulties that this church is going through. Maybe you've been here at other times where you just sense the Spirit moving, you, you see ministry happening, you feel worship in a way that, that for you right now, it's gone. It's really like when you think about all that you love about this church, the wine has run out. Well, I'm here to tell you this morning that just as Jesus transformed ordinary water into the choicest wine, He can transform the water in in your own situation before God, the water in in your relationships, conflicted relationships, the water of what you may feel and what this church is struggling through. He can change it into new wine. He can change the water of dead religion in your life into the wine of a new relationship with God. He can turn the dreary, tasteless water of a struggling marriage or a conflicted friendship into the wine of unity and joy. And yes, he can transform the spirit-quenched water of church struggles into the new wine of spirit-led unity and vision. And note the magnitude. Note the scope of how he does this. Look at verses 6 and 10. He didn't just produce enough wine to, you know, make them get through the day or even get through the rest of the wedding ceremony, he miraculously changed, you know, if we do the math from how much those jars hold, somewhere between 120 and 180 gallons of water into the choicest wine. I think that's something like 75 cases of the choicest wine. That's not just enough wine to get through the wedding ceremony. That's enough wine for the whole village of Cana for probably weeks. Isn't that the way Jesus comes into these situations? Isn't that the way Jesus comes into our situations? He does well beyond what we ever ask and imagine. Well, when do we see such miracles? Let me just close with two observations that I think speak very directly to where you may be personally this morning, where you may be in a relationship this morning, where our church is this morning. Where do we see Jesus show up, so to speak, and do these miracles? One, we see it happen when we recognize the presence of Jesus. I mean, I'm stating the obvious here, but notice what the text tells us. He was invited to the wedding. You know, the miracle would not have occurred if he had not been invited to the wedding. And I think about that. I think, I think of us personally, you know, in, in the midst of our struggles to find peace with God, or I think of it in our marriages or, or conflicted relationships. It is as if Jesus, you know, Revelation 3.20 gives this picture, and I, I know there's other tra- or interpretations of this, but gives this picture of Jesus is like standing there saying, hey, I'm here, I'm here. I will come into your life if you recognize me, if, if you open your life to me, I, I will come into your marriage. I will come into that relationship. But you got to recognize that I'm here. you got to invite me into this, recognizing the presence of Jesus. What does it mean for us as a church to recognize the presence of Jesus? How do we invite Jesus into the midst of, of the struggles the church is going through? I think of Revelation chapter 2, the beginning of the messages to the seven churches in Asia Minor, which really, even though they were real churches, represent all churches, represent churches like Central Church. 
And how is Jesus introduced at the beginning of chapter 2? He is the one who, chapter 2, He is the one who walks among the seven gold lampstands. The lampstands were symbols of churches. What is that communicating? Both then in Asia Minor and now here in Collierville, here at Central Church, Jesus is walking among His lampstands, His churches that claim to know Him and worship Him. He is here. He is watching. He is present. How would the the, the reality of that, how would the recognition of that, how would it change our conversations if we truly recognized that Jesus is present? How would it change our meetings if we recognized that He is here in the worship center and in classrooms and in the offices and in the boardroom? How would it begin to change this church in the midst of the struggles it's going through if we began to recognize He is here, He is walking among this lampstand? He is here. Can we invite Him in to what we're talking about? Can we invite Him in to what we're struggling about? Secondly, Jesus' answer to the wine running out, running out of our relationships, running out of marriages, running out of our church, comes from the lips of Mary. Do whatever He tells you. You know, that's so simple, that's so direct, that's so obvious that we, we often overlook it. But in the midst of whatever the situation is that, that we find ourselves thinking the wine has run out, we must not only recognize Him, we must obey Him as Lord. We must do whatever He tells us. We must take His Word, His teaching, and let it continually shape our thinking about the situations that we're dealing with. We must let it continually control our words that we speak about the situations that we're in the midst of. We must let it continually guide our actions in the midst of the situations that we are in. 1 Corinthians 5.17 says, If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature. This promise applies to our salvation, but this promise applies as well to what Christ wants to do in our relationships, in our marriages, in our families, yes, in our church. In our church, in the midst of whatever we're struggling through, Jesus wants to make us new creatures, increasingly transformed creatures, increasingly transformed Christ followers. He is here among us, and He calls us, and He empowers us for faithful obedience. And as we obey Him, as we do whatever He tells us, even when we fall, when we repent from that and we turn back to His Word again and again, that is the path to miracles. That is the path to transformation. That is the path to joy and blessing. So I want to invite you to pray with me today. And Maybe for some of you, 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 need to, you need to pray about where you're at with God in the first place. And for you, it's recognizing the presence of Jesus knocking on the door of your life, and you need to open your life to Him. For some of you, maybe it means inviting Jesus into that conflicted marriage or relationship. Or for many of us, perhaps this morning, it's, it's we're burdened with for our church, and we need to recognize the presence of Jesus and commit to doing whatever He tells us. 
I want to do this in, in a way, I don't, don't do this every week. In fact, this is fairly rare that I do it. But as I lead you in prayer, I, I think this kind of prayer, I think there is a posture for it. And again, I'm not trying to set up regulations. I just think that desire to recognize Jesus and to submit ourselves to Him is best exemplified on our knees. So I want to invite you. You, you don't have to do this if you're not able to do this or you're not comfortable. But I want to invite you as I lead us in closing prayer, if you're able, and if this is the state of your heart, that you kneel with me. If you're not able to do this, you can do this in your heart. You can kneel in your heart. Let me lead us in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your Holy Spirit, which uses your word like a sharp sword. And I pray in each of our hearts that sword of your word wielded by your Spirit, would touch the places, would cut the places, would heal the places that that we need to hear your word today. Lord Jesus, we come first of all, and we need to recognize your presence. And I want to give you just a few moments of silence right now. And whether it's where you are personally with God or whether it's in a relationship, a conflicted marriage, a conflicted family situation, a conflicted friendship, or whether it's your burden for this church, recognize His presence just between you and Him. Pray right now silently. Recognize His presence. Invite Him in. Jesus, thank You that You not only hear our prayers, You are just waiting to respond. Bring us back continually to see You present in our relationship with God, in our relationship with loved ones, in our relationship with brothers and sisters in Christ in this church. And Jesus, now we hear the words of Mary, do whatever he tells you. And Lord, that's what we need to do. And again, I want to give you a few moments of silence and whatever situation is particularly burdening your heart right now, do what Mary says. Commit to obey him as Lord, to do whatever he tells you. Would you do that right now in the silence of your heart? Jesus, and I particularly want to pray for this church. We commit, Lord, to being a people that hear and follow your word. And when we, when we fall off of that, when we fail, we commit to repenting and turning back to your word. We ask that you transform us to make us people of your word, Lord. We thank you that you hear our prayers. We thank you that you forgive us in our failures. We thank you that you empower us with your Holy Spirit to live out your word. We thank you for the joy of blessing and obedience that comes as we see you move when we recognize your presence and we do whatever you tell us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.